Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, we are here again. It's Monday evening, May the 16th. Um, good to see you. Good to see your uh, freshly shaven face. Um, you look 20 years younger. How are you doing? Not too bad. Yeah, I think for anybody that follows us on Instagram, you've been able to see the evolution of my facial hair growth and trimming and it's seasonal and cyclical but yes i am reminded of how jarring it is when i log on and you immediately that's the first thing you can say to me is where where did all your hair go uh which makes me feel really good about myself but so thank you for that i mean i was you know i was just at uh our high school for a little uh, alumni um tennis thing and i mean you would have fit right in I love to hear that. You know, maybe I'll get ID going out to the bars this weekend and that'll make me feel young again. Definitely. Well, um, a little bit of a tough week again in the news. Uh, what are we, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, it's always kind of unfortunate. Well, I mean, the, the things that we're going to talk about are far more unfortunate than anything that we have to deal with, but it's, it's unfortunate when we're kicking around topics and they're all so heavy, but that's just, unfortunately, the world that we live in at the moment. And so three conversations that we're going to have today. The first is reactions to the domestic terrorism incident, the mass shooting uh, in Buffalo that took place over the weekend. The second is the ongoing war in Ukraine and the United States role in that war and how that's evolved over the course of these last couple of months. And finally, we hit a milestone in COVID deaths just today or within the last 24 hours. So we'll come back to looking at how the United States has, is, is going to be handling the continued pandemic um, over the past few years and into the future. So yeah, like you said, not the most upbeat episode in terms of topics, but all important conversations and all things that unfortunately are, long running issues here and Ukraine is now a few months old and COVID's a few years old and racism and mass shootings in the United States are centuries old. So these are just issues that continue to plague us. And there are things that we have to continue to talk about. Just, I think for any of these issues, just shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, it's just business as usual. It's not worth talking about. Wouldn't, wouldn't feel right. And so as difficult as conversations may be, it feels that it feels better to talk about them than not. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. We're uh, maybe one of these days we'll do a good news only episode. Um, I think that would probably be worth highlighting some, some stories of a different slant, but I think you're, you're right. Just to kind of shrug our shoulders and say that this is the way that the world is um well kind of does a disservice definitely to the 
the specific people that have been involved, um, particularly thinking about Buffalo, but also COVID and our grim milestones there. And of course, what's going on in Ukraine. So I do like that idea. You know, when like John Krasinski did that, like did good news update in the pipe when we were really locked down during the pandemic, that was kind of nice. Yeah. So yeah, maybe that'd be good for us to do at some point. We'll start brainstorming ideas for that. <laughs> Unfortunately, that may be more difficult to find and we might have to dig a little more deeply than, than the headlines. Uh, all right. But before we get into all that, just a reminder to everybody out there, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Ricky, I was at Cast Island Brewery over in Southie this past weekend, and I saw a guy walk by wearing a Cannon Hill Woodworking t-shirt. It wasn't Zach Ardoon. No, it wasn't. It was, it was just, it was just a guy wearing a t-shirt. And I, I was sitting next to one of my buddies who listens occasionally, I know. And he, he turned to me, I, I pointed out, I was all excited about it. I saw him and I was like, oh, no way. And turned to me, he goes, that's Ken with two ends. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, you're a good listener. That was good. Did you, uh, find, but, did you find out if the guy listens to the pod? How do you get involved with Ken yeah, so I, yeah, I don't, I didn't really follow up with that one of my other friends. She was like, he doesn't want to be asked about it. And when we had a whole conversation about whether you wear shirts, if you want to be asked about it, I was of the opinion that you would want to be asked about it, but it was, I, I, just, I let it be. Um, so I, I don't get the full backstory, but anyway, that is Canon with two ends. You can check them on Instagram or visit them at line at online at www.cannonhillwood.com. So uh, continue as, as the business continues to grow, definitely give those guys a shout uh, with all of now those good feelings now let, let's transition uh to what happened in buffalo over the weekend um as most people probably know 10 people were killed and three more were wounded in the latest mass shooting in the united states it took place at a supermarket in buffalo new york a supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood the police arrested and took into custody an 18-year-old kid, uh, young man, I suppose. He's been charged with first-degree murder. Uh, and as they said, and it seems pretty clear, that this was just a, a straight-up racially motivated killing. He leaves behind, or he left, or the, was discovered, in like a, a manifesto that were outlined his plans to target the, the black population of Buffalo. As the investigation has come out in recent days, we've heard stories that he had been in the area prior to the shooting, like scouting the location. And it was, it was targeted because he wanted to, to kill black people. And the, the manifesto he leave, leaves behind is filled with unfortunately familiar racist and anti-Semitic tropes, arguments, statistics that have bounced around what used to be the fringes of the internet and now seem increasingly to have made their way not only into mainstream media, but into mainstream politics. So there's there's a lot to unpack here, obviously. Uh, you know, politically, uh, the New York governor, Kathy Hochul, she, she traveled there and uh, President Biden also, I, I believe, uh, either traveled there or, or is going to travel there. And uh, his statement 
I thought was interesting in that it really addressed the root causes of of why the, this this young man committed this this atrocity in terms of like the the white nationalist ideology the you know the hate the the domestic terrorism the those sorts of angles important didn't to address those issues notably did not address gun violence gun control which we have seen in the past you know unfortunately these these shootings and we've, we've talked about this before have become common enough where we, we could probably rattle off 10 top of our heads if, if we wanted to which is incredibly sad but under president obama he would often be like this is why we need more gun control president biden didn't take that tact not necessarily because he doesn't believe that but maybe just in a in a nod to the, the situation the reality that that doesn't look like there is any hope of happening so i don't know, I, I don't mean to focus the conversation on president biden's statement you, you can take it like i said there's a lot to unpack here obviously just a uh, terrific tragedy for that entire community that like that specific neighborhood the community of buffalo it it really tears at the fabric of everything that community's all dear of just being able to go about like everyday tasks of, of like living your life and not having to live in fear that you could be killed by a terrorist and this is something that unfortunately we all have to deal with to a certain extent just understanding that there is terrorism in the world there are people that just want to hurt you certain populations have to deal with that at a far more visceral, a far more frequent level. And the black populations in our country have long had to, had to like carry these fears out. And this weekend seems to be a confirmation of, of people's worst fears of, of what happens when rhetoric and guns and these in racism in our country all combine to in, in an individual who, who would do something like this. So anywhere you want to take it. Yeah, yeah, you definitely covered a lot of of ground there. Um, But yeah, the whole thing is, it is one of those things, right, where, like, as much as we talked about kind of last summer, maybe two summers ago, not putting some of these events at the back of our mind, like, no matter what you do, kind of the world spins on, and, and as time goes by, you stop thinking about it, and then, of course something like this happens again, primarily because we don't do anything. I mean, well, maybe not primarily, but I think it's, uh, you know, whatever that definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, right? Like uh, apologies if we sound like broken records, but it is the reality that we keep having the same things happen over and over again. Um, yeah, I mean, when I first heard kind of a little bit of what happened, there obviously there are a number of mass shootings that we could point to. The one that comes to mind for me is what happened in the Walmart in, I think, in El Paso, Texas, probably two or three years ago now. Um, very similar, like, language. And I don't even think it's really worth spending too much time on, like, what his motivations are. Um, but you know, the connection that you made to uh, 
social media, I think is timely because, you know, we, what were we just talking about last week, right? Elon Musk being like, I don't like the fact that we have restrictions on what people can say on Twitter. Um, but this is a kid who probably, you know, was radicalized on social media. Like he grew up in a pretty rant, you know, a pretty nondescript white suburban town in the middle of nowhere, New York. And, you know, they have the, Oh, we never thought this was possible. Or, you know, he seemed like a nice kid or his parents were always nice to me and I didn't know they were racist or something. And maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but clearly, you know, he found this content somewhere and more likely than not. um, Even if it started in the home, it probably continued on the, the internet. And, you know, this is, you know, who do we, who do we hold responsible? I think is a, it's definitely a a fair question to ask, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always have trouble with like the, the narrative after events like these, where it's a little bit of, or it's mostly just exasperation. Oh, this was a one-off. He was, you know, clearly mentally ill and, you know what and and like you said biden didn't even bring up the fact that gun you know the discussion about guns but lo and behold he used another ar-15 type of rifle which is every mass shooter's basically favorite weapon of choice um and part of me thinks like yes you know technically mass shootings in terms of ways to die by gun violence are are still relatively rare like what would it take like how many of these would we have to have a month before someone's like you know what maybe the ar-15 is not a rifle that we need um on the streets i don't know that like to me that's always the conclusion that i come to because if it's how do we do we police content that's on the internet i think you know there's a degree to which that we should but that to me is more problematic than policing sort of the prevalence of guns and like the argument that well he could just get it anyways like okay you can make that argument about a lot of things i think and i wouldn't it wouldn't i wouldn't lose any sleep over it if it was like harder for people like this to get weapons and if that included making it harder for everyday well-meaning people who just want to have an assault rifle in their house for whatever reason, I like, I think I'm okay with that too. I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily know where to start with this, right? Because obviously there's, there are the race components and I think those are important. Um, I haven't really asked you any questions here. I feel like I'm still digesting it too. I don't, I don't know. Right. It is, it is recent and it's hard because there is just a sense of numbness and this is from, again, people, at least for myself, they're like very, very far away from experiencing any like personal impact on this. And it's, you, we've all done it now for the vast majority of our, our adult lives for people that are our ages, you see the headlines, another mass shooting. And so the temptation, the inclination, there just might be a natural like numbness of you know, shrug your shoulders, turn your head, move on to the next thing. But again, like, let's come back to what we talked about earlier of like, that's not responsible. And I think you bring up a good 
point, the definition of insanity is keep doing the, the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. This is like the, this is the insanity of inaction, right? Of not doing anything over and over again and expecting that things won't continue to happen. And I guess that means that we as society, I don't guess it, that is, we as society have said that at this point, it's okay if these things are going to continue to happen because we haven't done anything really, anything meaningful in the last two decades to try to stop it. And that's where it, it is tricky because you pointed to two of the main drivers of this, either the motivation or the ability to carry it out with the weapon that he carried out with. And if the outcome is to stop mass shootings, all mass shootings, maybe particularly like racist, hateful, bigoted mass shootings, like totally on board with that outcome. I would venture to guess that like 100% of people would be on board with that outcome. Obviously, the disagreements comes that like are, are in like the process of doing that because his manifesto, I, I think, laid out pretty clearly that he began to be radicalized during the pandemic when he was bored and he had nothing to do and all he was doing was like being online and was particularly he I, I believe that he said that he was on 4chan a lot, which is I don't mean to mischaracterize I haven't spent any time on it but is like a far right conspiracy laced website where like really radical and extreme people expound conspiracy wild ideas that are often baseless but like backed up by debunk statistics and all those sorts of things and so over the last two years he spends more and more time on on this website where again you're pretty much allowed to say anything which we talked about just last week that you and I are more in favor of allowing people to say things than not and then he's has access to a gun which you and I might disagree on on this but there is a certainly argument to be made that people should have access to weapons. This is a legal weapon at the moment that he, that he got access to. And so while we all agree that we don't want these outcomes to keep happening, what happens is then we get in policy and process arguments and not, nothing happens at all. And so that's where it is difficult for me because I'm like, obviously if these solutions were easy, we would have done them. And maybe it seems easy maybe it seems easy to, to you, to people out there to just be like, well, if we just got rid of AR-15s, that seems easy. That would have made it far more difficult to, for him to kill this many people in this amount of time. But obviously it's not easy because again, nothing's been done about it because there are like legitimate policy and process disagreements about it. So I think that's, that's really where it's hard is that like, are we, we just like spin our wheels here and then we turn around and six months later, something like this happens again. And we have these same conversations. I, I don't know. I, I'm not satisfied with that, but I do understand the complexity of trying the reasons why we haven't solved some of these issues. Yeah. I mean, I guess, <laughs> I guess if, if it's a policy issue or like a procedural issue in that reasonable people, people can agree, but we have politicians who are beholden to support from the NRA and they work in areas or communities that the NRA's kind of endorsement has like a big swing. Like art, I mean, I, I, I think about this a lot and, and probably in conjunction with even sort of what's going on with Roe v. Wade is, is our political system actually no longer like 
do we need to divorce it from these like moral questions about what people should and should not have the freedom to do in society? Like we don't use that kind of the what like referendum type of you go to the polls and vote on a particular issue. Like we have that in Massachusetts, um, which oftentimes like I've actually criticized because I think many times those issues that ordinary people are voting on are, are often not well explained or they're esoteric and, and they get a lot of money coming at the issue in different directions. You don't really know where it's coming from. I think we talked about this, like about, uh, and like nursing quotas in hospitals, like, you know, who, who was, you know, you got a bunch of things saying nurses vote. Yes. Nurses vote. I'm, I'm digressing a lot, but like that idea that, you know, our government is, should be, um, (laughs) should be doing things that the government is kind of in designed to do, which is more along the lines of economic policy, certainly international relations, um, and, you know, maybe setting up some bounds for healthcare, like doing like FDA type FCC type stuff, like being uh, a watchdog or, or providing some, security uh for individuals and for individual rights but like those rights should actually be designed in some way by the population in which what we're seeing today because of how we have equal rep sort of equal weight between the house of representatives and the senate but these are two functionally very different bodies represent very different groups of people where uh, you know in the in in one case you have a house that is a little bit more aligned in population where in another case you have a senate that basically gives yeah equal vote to the senator from Wyoming with 300,000 people as the senator from California with however many million people right like there's I think something to be said for how we're like handling these moral questions that we are completely stagnated on because of the system that we've inherited that maybe just like at this point in our growth as a country, just like no longer serve us for these particular purposes. I don't know. I took that in a very odd direction. Yeah, no, I I, I do. I do understand what you're saying in terms of like, ultimately we live in reality and we can't just talk about like theory and, and principles when people are out there di- dying, literally. That That's difficult for me because like, ultimately I think those are the situations in, in which it becomes most easy to abandon principles. And this can go both ways, right? Like post nine 11, everyone's like, what did everyone want security? Right. And everyone's like the most thing I, I just want to be protected. And so what do you do? We have Congress immediately pass the Patriot Act. And what does that do? That gives the government like unprecedented, previously unprecedented ability to spy on search our own citizens. And those we all are aware those searches were not conducted equally amongst all U.S. citizens. They were they were targeted like very specific citizens who looked a certain a very specific certain way. Um, and so that's where it's like. It's hard, and this is where 
I don't love this criticism, but this is where when President Obama used to come out and be like, enough of thoughts and prayers, we want action. And what we need is like gun control, like all you Christians, Republicans, conservatives saying like thoughts and prayers. Well, that's not saving anybody's life from the next mass shooting, which I totally got President Obama's argument. But then Republicans would come back and say like, there goes President Obama again, trying to leverage a tragedy to like get his policies passed. It was like, yeah, like it's, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> that argument drives me nuts because it's like, well, if no one's talking about mass shootings, like so much the better, like let's just not talk about it. And then some, something happens and everyone's like, what, do you want to talk about shootings now? Like this is not the time. So we just had a mass shooting. So, th- I mean, there's never necessarily like a good time for that. I hate that argument that like, oh, you're trying to like take advantage of a tragedy. It's like, unfortunately that is the best time to get anything done right like the patriot act comes right after 9-11 if it came before 9-11 you'd be like why why this is this doesn't sound right <laughs> we shouldn't do that yeah yeah i guess my, my point is that in times of of tragedy often those are times of great fear and in fear people are more willing to give up their freedoms or more likely other people's freedoms in the name of, of safety. And so that's where I, I, I do think it's a little bit dangerous to act in these moments. And again, like, I understand that it's like kind of contradictory what I'm, what I'm saying, because ultimately we just, I think you and I, and most people would want to just protect people's lives and not allow these things to happen in our communities. But you ultimately, whether or not we agree, this is like a fundamental constitutional right many people feel like it is and people don't want to give up those rights clearly even in the face of tragedies like this continuing to happen yeah and i mean and that's and i and i and i i guess i shouldn't dismiss that i think there's there definitely been cases like our you know i mean this is a, a horrible parallel but like our lack of happy hour in boston right it was like one happy hour went wrong and then immediately we haven't had happy hour in the city in over 50 years. And this is not, I'm not, I'm not trying to equate the two things, but I think you are right that people will ascribe certain, um, you know, they'll just immediately come up with a cause and effect relationship and say, well, we can remove the cause and therefore we'll handle the effect. Like you can do, I mean, I'm sure studies have been done on whether drunk driving is, particularly less in Massachusetts than any other state because we don't have happy hour. I, I, I bet the finding is not right. Like I bet that we didn't make a meaningful dent in that. And, and I think, I think there's something to be said for that. And that was kind of a freedom. And and once they're gone, it's very hard to change the clock. Um, And, and yeah, I guess I I don't want to dismiss that. I mean, I think, again, this is not, yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things. I think at, at at some, I think what you sort of said about, you know, this is the rate, like one mass shooting per year we're tolerating. To, to me, that means at some point there there's like some level of, of this kind of gun violence and, and what separates this from uh, kind of your everyday gun violence, which we have a lot of, is that this is random right like this whether you were directly impacted or not you're everyone's actually impacted because these are 
you know, ordinary people just going to the grocery store on a Saturday afternoon. Yep. And that turns into a massacre. And, and, you know, by all, like all accounts, they had absolutely nothing to do with it, which means in some way or another, this could happen to anybody. Right. So like that level of fear is different than gang violence or, um, or something like that. Not saying that like, right. That they're, they're, they're different and, and impact people differently. But we would imagine that if there was a, there would be a rate of this kind of incidents that we would say, okay, we do have to do something. And I think you like, we kind of have, I, I think if it gets to that level, I don't know what that level is. The first policy prescription is going to be that we need to take these AR-15s off the street to start, because that's a lot easier than trying to control what people read on the internet. I think, I think that's kind of the reality of the situation. Yeah. Whether or not. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I, I think that's fair. Uh, there's always a tension between liberty and safety. That's kind of like that. That's at the heart of the social contract, right? Everyone individually, we give up some rights because we want to be protected and able to like live out our lives free from like the state of nature where it's nasty, brutish and short and everyone's trying to kill everyone else for like scarce resources. And right now, liberty has won for like for gun owners, right? Like for Gun owners, despite everything that's happened in the last two decades, have continued gun rights advocates, gun owners have maintained their liberty at the expense, in some cases, of of people's safety and people's lives. And you're right. I think at some point there might be a tipping point where people aren't good with that trade-off anymore and and want want to make that that trade-off a little more even. the way we were describing it is exactly right. And that's why it's the appropriate label of domestic terrorism, because then it's like everyone has to have these fears. And it's just, I know sometimes it's just words and just labels, but they do matter. And it's important to, to label them as, as such. When we have all this talk about terrorism around the world, by far the biggest threat to the United States in the last two decades has been domestic terrorists, largely white men. One last thing I, I wanted to touch on here, and I, I kind of mentioned it at the beginning when I was just introducing what happened, was in his manifesto, he lists his motivation, amongst other things, as being like this replacement theory, which some people might have heard of. It's the theory that white people in the United States are being deliberately re- replaced by minorities of all all sorts, pretty much like non I mean, like non-white Christians, I guess is like what I would say is so like minorities of, uh, so Jews, Muslims, Hispanics, Blacks, like however, Asians, whatever, like non-white Christians. And this theory that like people, particularly on like the left side, Democrats are intentionally trying to replace white people in this country who have quote unquote, like built this country. This is the same rhetoric we heard in Charlottesville in 2017, I think is the year like you, you, Jews will not replace us, like th- those sorts of things. And that's the rhetoric we've heard increasingly over these last few years. And so I was thinking about this a little bit because, again, this used to be radical people that would, would maybe whisper about this in the corners of the internet. And then 
President Trump comes along and gives a little, he, he emboldens people, I would say. And, and even if President Trump wasn't saying these things, he gave a little bit of a home to people who, who wanted to say these things. And so you, you do have Charlottesville and you do have, we talked about the French elections last week. Like this is not a, this is not a uniquely American phenomenon. This is a, a Western world phenomenon right now where one of the other candidates in the French election, I think his name was Zamor, Zamour, something like that. He was openly espousing the same theory. He was actually, we talked about um, Macron as being kind of center left and then uh, Marine Le Pen being like a, a far right candidate. Zamor was on her right. He was making her look, more liberal by by comparison but what i'm saying is like this this rhetoric is out there and this is something again that used to just be like on the very fringes but now has has entered just the mainstream consciousness and tucker carlson we've mentioned a lot on on this program because he's the number one political personality on cable news and, and really any news probably is someone that has has, I don't even know really how to say it, has put in a lot of these ideas into his, his show, whether implicitly or explicitly or overtly or subvertly, like he, he's infused a lot of his, his show and his segments with, with ideas like this. And you've also seen it not only at the highest levels with the presidency, but you also now see it like Elise Stefanik, who's the number three Republican, she's a New Yorker, Again, we said pre-Trump was seen as like a kind of a moderate Republican in over the last few years has really transformed into like a far right mega Trump voice. She replaced Liz Cheney uh, and people were mega people are very excited about that. But now it's resurfacing that like campaign ads that she ran last year pretty much explicitly like said this, that like, look, the Democrats are allowing all of these undocumented immigrants into the country because they want to have like a continual this is the real election insurrection or something like that. Like it's just a a perennial by Democrats are allowing all of these other people to come into your country and steal your votes and your elections. Right. And so I don't know, like that's another thing where I know it's doesn't necessarily do us any good to like point fingers and blame this person and that person say he said this and she did that. But also this is a chance to hold the mirror up to some of these people and be like, well, this is, this is like the outcome. And I think all of those people would distance themselves and say, no, 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 I I never wanted anything like this, of course. But it's, it's, it's not that hard to connect the dots here to what you're saying and what this, this kid is doing. Yeah, I don't, um, I, yeah, I mean, I think as a time, New York Times reader, there were a couple articles sort of linking some of the the great replacement language of Tucker Carlson and um, to you know different phrases that this kid had in his manifesto. But honestly, like I see him as someone who's on as like lurking in these message boards, looking for catchphrases that he gets to put on national news. And yeah, like you said, they're giving a bit of legitimacy that, that maybe that these guys didn't have before, or, you know, over the last like 10 years, um, 
they've started to get more of certainly under, under Trump's presidency, but in general, I just, yeah, I mean, this undercurrent has kind of always been there. It's, it's that, uh, oh, you know, I'm not allowed to say this because it's not politically correct. And you know, Trump is this like anti-political correctness warrior, but it, it's like, are you not allowed to say it because it's not politically correct or because it's blatantly racist or just like absurd? And those thoughts, like you shouldn't have those or you need to like talk to somebody and deal with those things, right? Like, I think there's, there was kind of a wave. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. That just sort of... A, uh, of bringing some of this stuff to the mainstream, but like Tucker Carlson's n- nothing that he says is original. It's not like unique. He just found that, Hey, nobody else on the air uh, on like mainstream media will say this. So I'll say that I'm not mainstream media and just take all these sound bites and regurgitate them. And all of a sudden I'll be the hero that's saying the things that people are too afraid to say. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's too bad, I guess, that we've gotten this far. But I think the reality is we never really dealt with it. I think we've talked about kind of the Obama election or even like dating back to civil, like the civil rights movement. We had these major milestones and we like to kind of just pat ourselves on the back and say that we're done with it. But you know, in, in every one of those instances, you can point to people who were not kind of convinced and actually, uh, you know, interpreting those major events in, in basically the exact opposite way. And sure, we were able to kind of put a lid on it for a while. And maybe somebody like Trump kind of opens Pandora's box here. But he's merely a mouthpiece to the feelings that a lot of people have had. And so this is more an issue for us, like broadly as a society than it is those individuals. And again, and, 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 and this gets back to like, how do you deal with it? Right? Like, I don't think sending every, sending all these people scurrying to the weird corners of the internet, like discord and 4chan or whatever is really that helpful in terms of like how do we handle the fact that it's 2022 and we still have some kid in the like literally the middle of nowhere of new york probably only seen like two other black people in his life thinking that black people are going to replace him and his like and his race or whatever like you know what i mean like stuff that's just absolutely should be ridiculous but is out there and believable to people who are susceptible to these things but the, I, I think the question is more like how is that possible and not exactly what is the message that they're receiving i don't know that could be all over but it, yeah, I mean, I think- yeah and then it like well all right well if we're if we talk about education and yeah i don't know i don't know where it starts as you can tell i'm very exasperated today i got i got no no solutions just a lot of problems well that's that's the frustrating part here and we've long said this that if if we were actually solving major world issues here we probably have more listeners than we do uh (laughs) so 
Yeah, there's as usual, we have no solutions, just the the same frustrations I'm sure a lot of people are are dealing with right now, but I suppose it's important to to try to talk through those frustrations and, and see if there's there are things that we can do better, that we have to do better, that we can't just keep allowing these things to happen, and certainly that we can't allow them to go unnoticed and unspoken of. Yeah. I mean, I... I mean, I guess so, like, our, that the assault rifle ban that, like, expired 10, 20 years ago, that was us just, like, giving it a shot, right? Like, I I feel like there's data behind that to either support or, I mean, 10 years is potentially not enough time, but maybe those... I think it was 94. Okay. Is when it elapsed? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was still in into like the bush years. Okay, maybe I got that wrong. I don't know. Potentially something to to look into. Like, I, it just feels like we got to try something somewhere again at some point. No, you're right. Good call. It, it, it was passed in '94 and then ended in 2004. So it's it's been out for 18 years now. Okay. I mean, I like it. It seems like something that's that would be worth just getting some clear like did did we make a dent in it did we have fewer was it more difficult like because a lot of these kids are like you know 18 it's not necessarily right it seems like this happens with a lot of young people who as this kid did just went out in new york state and bought this rifle um passed a background check, not, not even, you know, it's New York state. So it's not as easy as some of these other States to get this weaponry. I don't know, potentially a di- discussion for a different topic. I, I like, I understand that some people are still on like on the fence about whether this does anything, but it seems like we should have some data of the period between 1994 and 2004 in my head there, it wasn't as frequent, but certainly the world was a different place back then as well. So like, it's hard to draw, linear conclusions and yet it's also seems hard to just say like well i don't you know what i mean it's like i can't prove directly that smoking causes lung cancer so for 50 years we should just not do anything about it like i don't know <laughs> i don't know well speaking of i don't know when we come back let's talk about what's going on in the, in the ukraine and the united states role in the ukraine Yeah, more things I don't know about. All right. So we want to come back to the Ukraine. We've touched on it in several previous episodes, but as we noted from our very first conversations about this, we didn't feel like this was going to be a short conflict, and that has proven to be the case. And just like with, or at least in a similar way to with these mass shootings, there was so much political coverage of the Ukraine and at the end of February, at the beginning of March, at the beginning of the Russian invasion. And over time, as is very natural, the news cycle moves on and people move on and you get less and less attention to the Ukraine. But the the fighting there hasn't lessened. In fact, it's probably only intensified in, in recent weeks and the suffering there hasn't lessened. It probably has only intensified. And so it's one of those things where we did want to keep coming back to it because we don't want to just shrug our shoulders and like this, this is continues to be a big issue. And in particular, what I wanted to talk to you about was the United States is, is role in that issue in, in the conflict, because 
the United States is about probably this week to pass a bill giving $40 billion in aid to the Ukraine. That's on top of $14 billion that we gave to Ukraine back in March. And it's on top of an increasing U.S. political presence over in the Ukraine. In, in recent weeks, we've had the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, the defense Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, were both there. We had uh, Jill Biden, the First Lady, was over there. And Nancy Pelosi led a congressional delegation of Democrats over there. And then Mitch McConnell led a, a Senate de- delegation of Republicans over there. We've had, except for President Biden himself, pretty much all of the, the major figures on, on U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy, have been to the Ukraine in recent weeks. So we are we have an increasing political presence there. We have an increasing economic presence there. And through the intelligence we're, share, we're sharing with the Ukraine, we have an increasing military presence there as well. So not only are we sending them all of these weapons, but our intelligence that's come out has led to a huge number of Russian officers being killed. And we talked briefly about a Russian warship being sunk in the Black Sea about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, maybe. And just recently it came out that United States intelligence led directly to that, the sinking of that ship. And so what I heard was that President Biden and others in the Biden administration were furious with these news outlets that were reporting this. New York Times, Washington, like Biden himself and other like top members of his administration were getting on the phone with these like reporters, and editors being like, you can't report this stuff. And it's, it's tricky because like obviously as you want the news to be holding everyone accountable, particularly the government, the highest levels of government, we, don't, we want the news like that's what good reporters do or get like get these scoops and report them to the public so we know what's going on. Unfortunately, what the Biden administration is saying is that like, look, if this continues to get out, the Russians are seeing this. And we can't be over here being like claiming, not that we ever claimed that we were neutral, we were always on the side of Ukraine, but our official position was like, we're not in this war. We're not, we're not fighting with Russia here. This is Ukraine and Russia fighting. The United States will support the Ukraine, but we're not engaging in this war. But if our intelligence is leading to the killing of Russian generals, and our intelligence is leading to the sinking of Russian warships, and our money is leading to the weapons that are killing those generals and sinking those warships, and our politicians over there being photographed and talking strategy and money with the Russian, with the Ukrainian prime minister, it's hard to say that the United States isn't really involved in this war. And this is where I want to talk to you about this, because it's very much like a bipartisan thing at this point, and I, I understand it. Right. There's there's enormous sympathy for the Ukrainian people and Russia certainly appears to be the big bad guy here. And I I give you credit because you consistently have tried to give like the other side of things, the Russian side of things, for lack of a, a better word. I'm just being like, let's try to see this from Russia's perspective. Well, Ricky, if I was looking at this from Russia's perspective, the reason that so many of our soldiers, so many of our generals, so many of our tanks and warships are being either killed or destroyed well the united states has an awful lot to do with that yeah and i mean that leaves us and that's well i guess i'll start with you know i I think the point of like uh u.s and u.s government and u.s intelligence trying getting our news outlets to not sort of report how influential our uh intelligence and or money and or 
arms has been in um in the conflict i think is to me is a bit ridiculous i don't think russia is under any illusion that the ukrainian army is only able to do what it's doing because of its allies like i mean i think part of it was a miscalculation in terms of a how much how much people would be willing to give particularly because of russia's kind of influence of in kind of global energy right like this is everyone is paying for what is happening in ukraine at the pump or in europe they're paying it on on the gas line and at the pump um and i think russia had a sort of an idea that people weren't going to be willing to go to bat for ukraine to the extent that they are given what it's going to do economically and we're sort of seeing like you know rapid inflation and a number of different problems kind of spiraling out of this like were had this ended in you know probably 3 weeks that the russians had probably uh originally accounted for because they thought you know we'll just go in there and and just knock everything out and then you know, it'll be done and it'll just be back to the negotiating table because they will have surrendered. Um, yeah, like, yeah, I don't, I, I guess start with, there's nothing that the New York Times is kind of set, is, is publishing that the Russians aren't already aware of. I I think, I like, I to me, it would be very naive if, if they thought that, that, that Ukrainians were able to get this done completely on their own. Where does this leave us? Yeah, I mean, I kind of alluded to this as what the U.S. from a political standpoint, like, wanted. Like, this is the proxy war that we've wanted to have for a long time. Hey, we get to to really go after the Russian military and just say it's not us so that they don't, you know, try and drop a nuke on, on, you know, either try and fire one over the Atlantic or send one to Alaska or probably worse and more likely drop one in Western Europe, right? Like that was the whole thing that was keeping us from doing large scale warfare against Russia for any number of slight that we've felt over the last 20 years is that there's sort of a threat of, uh, of nuclear war. And quite frankly, like that threat is not zero and not gone. And yeah, I think it's, I understand optically why we're doing what we're doing. I think that we do have to ask a couple of questions, like what is really the end game? Do we actually think that, you know, there's a certain amount of aid that we could give that Russia would just kind of throw up their hands and walk away. I think Putin's not really that kind of a leader um, to, to accept defeat in that way. Um, you know, he's definitely amplifying that this is an American proxy war, which it really looks like. And then, you know, on the flip side of things, like, is it really an an altruistic um, show of just like, well, yeah, there's an aggressor in your neighborhood. We want to give you the tools to fight him yourself, but we also like want to make sure that you win this fight. So, you know, there, there are some things that we're going to additional things that we're going to do to see that through. 
Yeah, I don't, I mean, strategically, again, I think it's a mistake because Russia just globally is just a lot more important to us than, or a lot more important to the world. And it's horrible to say that, but I think it, it, w- it, it would be like impossible not to acknowledge the reality just in terms of the natural resources that are within Russia and kind of what, how we need them on board for a lot of the things that we have to do, like internationally, like tackle climate change and stuff like that. Like this is not, it's not, I, I don't think it makes sense to continue to like force them into this. Like the only way that they can get out of this is be that like ultimate pariah on this on the global stage and i i think that's where this is headed and i'm uh, yeah i'm definitely worried that 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 like you will back them into a corner and and something really bad will happen yeah i think that's right on i read a political political headline yesterday i think that said the the west new biggest fear what if ukraine wins and the thesis of the article was pretty much exactly what you just said. So in terms of like what's happening militarily in Ukraine, Russians had withdrawn from their siege of Kiev and that was unsuccessful. And they said that they were going to just refocus on like the eastern part of Ukraine, the part close to Russia, the Donbas region. That offensive has stalled. Like the, the Ukrainians are not only like fighting them equally, they pushed them back from Kharkiv, uh, Ukraine's second largest city, and are now pushing them back towards the Russian border. In addition, like Russia is suffering pretty devastating losses to, to their forces. I think the latest estimate I saw from the UK was almost like one third of the forces that Russia had originally committed back in beginning of March are, are now dead. And obviously like wars, as the United States well knows, is is a huge drain on the economy, let alone the economic sanctions that are that are crippling the Russian economy right now. And so, like you said, there's there's now a fear that we are pushing Russia into a corner. And as again, as you said, like Putin's not a guy that seems that he's going to accept a complete defeat here. If, if Ukraine continues to push Russia back towards the Russian border, it gives more and more incentive for Putin to deploy some weapons in a quote-unquote like defensive maneuver here where now all of a sudden you know Russian citizens or Russian towns and cities might be quote-unquote at risk and so I, I saw this interesting piece where it was saying that um, the leaders of like France Germany Italy are now pushing for a ceasefire now even though Ukraine is starting to like turn the tide in the war they almost want Russia to get something out of the war because if Russia really does get nothing if the Ukraine wins at all like completely gets Russia and thwarts all of their objectives, which it seems like the United States wants at this point. Well, then the threat of a nuclear like deployment seems more likely, not less. I I just, as as we said from the start of this, and at the beginning, our conversation was around what we thought was Vladimir Putin miscalculating what, what was going to happen. And that's definitely true but what we both had said at the time was that that's a dangerous miscalculation because i don't think that he is prepared to lose this war and so the the more that he seems to be losing the more dangerous he gets i think yeah i i yeah i mean i i think that that if i was going to add anything to that um like 
yeah, I, it's tough to say. Like, definitely don't want to minimize the impacts on civilians, particularly in Ukraine. But given sort of where the Russian forces were at the beginning, like, had they not cared at all about civilian casualties, I, I, like, the population was so big and so many people were you know, incredulous about the whole thing. And so there were so many civilians around at the beginning, the humanitarian disaster, which is one of like primarily one of people being displaced from their homes instead of out and out, uh, you know, killed from the beginning, I think is, is one that we have to think about in terms of, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's exactly what you said. Like, that was all like, it, all right, the rules were one way at the start, but if Russia feels like, well, we're not fighting on the same terms that, you know, we had started this engagement on, we're going to up the ante here. It's definitely something that's, uh, yeah, it's so, it definitely great. So two other parts of this conflict that I, I want to get your opinion on. The first is back to the, how this is playing here in the United States. So when the United States pulled out of Afghanistan finally last year, it was the culmination of really a a decade-long souring on foreign military intervention here in the United States. On both ends of both parties, it was very much like this is where the the far right and the far left seemed to have come around in that circle. And we were saying enough with the foreign intervention, it's too many American lives, too many American dollars lost for what? Like what, what, what do we gain out of all of that? And it was super interesting. And President Trump, we had said, both you and I had said that like, this is one of the places we did credit him for bringing that, that, that questioning to the, the traditional foreign policy that had existed for under the Obama administration as it existed under the Bush and Clinton and Bush administrations, just like consistently across Republican and Democratic administrations, <clears throat> we were going to be involved in foreign conflicts. And both you and I criticized that. And so that seemed to have been like the general consensus mood through not only you know, the United States people, but United States like politicians and, and politics. It's just interesting how quickly things have shifted, where, again, we, we talked about Biden and Pelosi and McConnell and McConnell was he was questioned about like the 40 billion dollars and going to visit the Ukraine and when the United States has so many problems here domestically. And he was pretty much like I, I'll direct a quote. He said, so we're all on the same team on this. The Russians need to lose. The Ukrainians need to win. Period. Like that, that that's his attitude. And that seems to be the attitude. But it's just. This is this is where, again, <laughs> the traditionalists, the people that we, you and I, I think value for a lot of reasons, the people that are more like institutionalists that are not far more, you would say, center left and center right, but are also a product of these last couple of decades of interventionism and are more hawkish. Again, whether it's center left Democrats or center right Republicans, like these are like the big state war the war military industrial complex machine. And now they're, they're back on top because of the sympathy that I felt for the, that we feel for the Ukraine. And that's what I just find so interesting right now is like the politics of it all, where 
I mentioned the 40 billion that should be approved by the Senate this week. It, it cruised through the House. The only 57 votes against it were all far right MAGA Republicans. And the people holding it up in the Senate is Rand Paul, who is the closest thing to a libertarian, a true libertarian we have in the Senate. And then there's probably going to be a half dozen far right Republicans that aren't going to vote for it. It's, I, I don't, it, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by anything anymore, but just the, how quickly that people were able to stop on a dime and turn from, thank goodness we're, we're stopping intervening, you know, as, as, as ugly as the withdrawal from Afghanistan was, kudos to President Biden for finally doing it, to now going all in on intervening in Ukraine. I, what, do you, what do you make of all that? Yeah, I mean, A, I think exactly what you said about who is objecting, the fact that only far-right Republicans, like for, for whatever their reasons are, you know, Donald Trump likes Vladimir Putin, <laughs> like for whatever it is, I forget this, this goes back to like high school history for me, but one of our teachers once said like, there, there's something to be said for it. Like in a, in a representative democracy, when you have this kind of unanimity in, in one direction or another, it tends actually not to be like the best thing. Like usually things are better off when there's some measured discussion about like exactly what pros and cons are into doing these things. And we just don't have that right now. We didn't have it after 9-11. We really didn't have it on the onset of the Iraq war. And this is like another one of those things. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely for the progressives, the progressives out there. To me, this is a, a huge problem. And it's, but it's not surprising, right? Like this is American politics 101. If you can make someone out to be evil and then we're like the good guys or you know we're supporting the good guys you know you bring back those the feelings of like world war ii and i and and i can't and i have to constantly say because it sounds ridiculous but these aren't as much as we kind of want to make this out to be a simplified good versus evil situation it isn't that cut and dry and i think it's just, it's really just important for us to understand exactly what the motivations are and whether they really serve us, um, like the United States in, in general. And that's not to say that we should just let any country get invaded by a, a, like a larger force that's sitting on its border, but this is, yeah, it's, it's kind of really destabilizing to the current sort of world order, which I think, yeah, like you noted, some of the hawkish Republicans and Democrats were sort of looking for, we need to sort of supplant Russia. I think the thing that people should be scared about, like in in Europe, for instance, abandoning all of their Russian gas contracts and now looking for uh, American liquefied natural gas to kind of replace that, right? Like we're four years removed from a Trump presidency, Vladimir Putin was elected president in Russia 20 years ago. Like, there's really nothing to say that, in, I mean, obviously, I'm very hopeful that, that, that it doesn't go this way. But like, there's something to be said for sort of spreading out the power a little bit, because there's nothing that makes any one country inherently good 
or evil. It, it really is just sort of the product of what they have been doing for the last 20 years, last five years or last year. Right. And, and those, and those tides can change us in a democracy in a monarchy and any autocracy, like these things can constantly shift. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's unfortunately not surprising, but, but, you know, to, to your other point about the military industrial complex, right? Like, all right, we ratchet down the war in Afghanistan. Now we don't really have any public war going on, but we still have a three quarter trillion dollar military budget. And then like instantly, $40 billion for Ukraine, but we're fighting over like six or $7 billion for different aid projects within the United States or like revitalizing our trains. Some of that stuff is like, just feels absurd, but nobody's willing to say it because in order to say it, you have to come out on the side of evil, essentially, in the way that we've split this dichotomy, which is, yeah, it's, it's sad. And it, um, but it goes to just kind of the broader shortcomings of our political system. Like it's, a, it has so many, so many benefits but one of the detractions is that it really relies on human emotion. Um, and the easiest way to sort of rally the troops, metaphorically speaking, and, and, and physically is like, you know, once you can paint the bad guy, right, which we had, have had such a problem doing in the last 10 years when, you know, whatever was going on in Afghanistan was going on. But most of our bad guys were all it was either Obama for you or Trump for you or whatever, Hillary or Trump, right? Like those were our bad guys. Now we've got someone in Putin that we can kind of coalesce around internally, project our energy outward and like, let's not lose that momentum. And like, we'll also sign up as much, uh, as much military aid and additional spending as we can. I mean, most of that money still goes to like, you know, our companies that we then kind of, funnel like different ways of like subsidizing the weapons that we sell externally. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not a strict handout to, to to Ukraine, unfortunately, either. All right. Last part that I want to get your take on, and you mentioned this a little bit is just looking at it from the European perspective. And so we said that as much as crippling as the economic sanctions have been, the saving grace for Russia is that they've been able to continue to sell their gas to Europe. Well, the EU seems to be approaching an agreement amongst themselves to stop buying Russian gas in the next couple of years. Hungary, which we actually talked about last episode as well, everything everything connects, Ricky, it all connects. (laughs) Uh, Hungary is actually holding it up pretty much for the reasons that you said, like Hungary is like way more dependent, it's way closer to Russia than both geographically and also politically than many other EU countries are. But it looks like the EU is probably going to get that done by throwing gobs of money at Hungary to to make it happen. And again, transition to different energy sources, including uh, from the United States, which I think on the one hand is great in terms of really putting significant teeth into all the sanctions. It'll make all the sanctions way worse on Russia because like they will lose the 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 cash cow for lack of a better word and that in an ideal world drives Vladimir Putin to the negotiating table because people are in his country are so upset by 
the economic distress that they are putting pressure on him that he has to negotiate. You know, obviously the downside of this, as you've said for months now, is that we continue to isolate Russia more and more and back them into a corner. And if they have no allies economically anymore at all, well, then what do they have to lose by by being more extreme? And then finally, I don't know if this connector or not, but Finland and Sweden seem poised this week to apply to join NATO, which, again, on the one hand, is a really good thing. As, as a member of NATO, the United States should love when we have countries that are Western democracies that are strong, particularly in Finland's case, that are very strong military um, technology technologically like they are they would be a valuable ally to have if you wanted to counter the perceived and actual evil from Russia that's great on the other hand again now Russia is sharing something like an 800 mile border with NATO countries and what was Russia's whole point of invading Ukraine was that they didn't want NATO weapons on their doorstep if and when it appears that Sweden and Finland are going to join NATO well, Russia is going to have NATO weapons on their doorstep and all of the NATO countries ready to defend if Russia invades any of those countries. So it's these developments, again, like obviously the United States is intimately involved in everything that's happening, but it's it's far more imminent and immediate and urgent for these European countries. And I totally understand if I was Finland and Sweden, I'd want to join NATO too. They're looking at what happened in Ukraine where again, as much aid as they're getting, they got no direct really military support. And there's no reason like given Russia's behavior in the last few years that like Russia wouldn't just try to annex part of Finland next, right? It, like given what's happening. And so Finland wants to assure that that doesn't happen. I totally get it from Finland's perspective. Again, I'm happy that they're going to join, but it's continuing to back Russia into a deeper and deeper corner which not to just like keep beating a dead horse seems quite dangerous. Yeah. Uh, no, it, 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 it definitely is. And I, I mean, I think this is one of those. So as you know about me, I'm a huge proponent of kind of the European union and like the economic integration as a way to prevent these kinds of things from happening um, and there was, you know, enough of that trade, particularly in energy between Russia and, and Europe, that we sort of thought that this was impossible, that that was going to be sort of a mutually assured destruction. And we're sort of seeing that unfold right now, like energy prices in Europe are extremely high. And then on top of it, obviously, Russia's economy is kind of falling to pieces, I think. <clears throat> Um, yeah, on the issue of Finland and, and Sweden, I, I think because it has to be a unanimous um, decision to accept or not, I think probably Turkey or somebody else within NATO will use that veto power. I mean, I'd love to see a total curveball and have Russia just apply to join NATO and just really confuse the shit out of everybody. But the the... Yeah, I I don't think I mean economic leverage is still even though it's been pretty weak I think is one of those things that ha- has really helped kind of contain it contain the conflict to the area that it's in. I mean at the same time 
I don't think Vladimir Putin is like still, despite all of the disaster that's happening right now for Russia and Ukraine, I don't think he's that stupid. And for some reason, there's something different about Finland than there is about Ukraine, like in terms of the length of the border on Russia, kind of how many like Finnish there are no real Russian speakers in Finland, the way like probably 50 to 60% of Ukrainians speak Ukrainian and Russian, especially in that Eastern part. Um, So like, I think, I think it's a different calculus. I mean, I, I mean, I don't disagree that their like application to, for NATO membership, like, I don't think that that's unfounded or doesn't have any uh, given what we've seen clearly not, but in terms of is there a real danger in that direction, the way that there was in Ukraine, I think the conditions are different, but I've been wrong, been wrong before. And if I, yeah, if I'm in Europe, I am worried that, yeah, you just continuing to, to poke at uh, an increasingly desperate Vladimir Putin And I think, yeah, and I think there's something to be said for, like, you know, a a United States under Joe Biden is one that you feel like culturally and ethically or whatever that you have a lot in common with, you know, between Olaf Scholz in Germany and Macron in in France, right? Like the two guys that are kind of calling the shots in Europe. But that's not a that's not a given. In 2024, you could be dealing with a totally different person. So if I am in Europe, I don't know that I want to put all of my eggs in the basket of a country that's 3,000 miles away, separated by an ocean. When Russia is here, like they're right here, they're inter uh, you know intercontinental ballistic missiles. They don't have to go that far to hit one of us, right? So this is really an our problem. And I think that's, you know, been kind of a fundamental problem for NATO in general is that it's heavily reliant on U.S. military aid. I mean, it is U.S. military aid. So U.S. military is like an extension of NATO, basically, right? So how to square, like, okay, Yes, we have a lot of similarities with how we perceive the American democracy and what they value, and those are aligned with ours, and maybe in some form in, in, uh, you know, in an antagonistic way against Russia's, and so this alliance makes sense. But I, yeah, to me, if I'm, if I'm there, I want to figure out a way that, yeah, Russia can save some face and we can call this a day and figure out, okay, like what's next and how do we put treaties and alliances in place where this does not happen again. And it's not, we need to embarrass Russia and punish Russia. Well, I mean, there, that I think has already been achieved. I think we can recognize that. And then we need to like move on and figure out a way of, of making this like a tenable future relationship because i it just, i the i agree with with exactly what you're saying like the point of this disentanglement is to make those sanctions have teeth and to a degree they haven't because of how much money they've had to send 
to continue to pay for gas. But the flip side is also true. Once you're not buying the gas, then then there's no connection. And so then then they don't need you either. Yeah, I feel like you're channeling your inner George Washington tonight when his last like farewell address, he said he warned future United States presidents and governments against permanent foreign allies or permanent foreign enemies. And so that your 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 tax night is one deeply rooted in the greatest of Americans. I'd love to, I'd love to, I don't know that history as well. I, uh, maybe I'll get an, an updated reading list from you. Yeah, there we go. It's a future episode. I'll give you some homework for a future one. All right. Uh, when we come back, we will continue the uh, upbeat nature of this show and talk about a COVID milestone that we reached this week here in the United States. So this week, the United States hit a COVID milestone, a grim COVID milestone of 1 million deaths. It's a staggering number. It, you know, unfortunately harkens back to like that Joseph Stalin saying that made famous something what like one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And while I would imagine not only us, but many listeners out there and obviously many millions of Americans have personal tragedies around COVID. One million people dying is a number that that's pretty unfathomable. It's, I think I read that it's the amount of soldiers that died in the civil war in world, United States. So United States soldiers that died in the civil war and world war II combined. It would be like if everybody in Boston and everybody in Pittsburgh had died and it's it's it, it was like one other thing I read was it, it was like if September 11th had happened 326 days in a row or something like that like it's it's tragic obviously uh hard to put in to proper context hard to give mm-hmm. proper deference to all the, the deaths and suffering and it's just like, like again to continue with like the through line of this episode it's like it's tempting just to kind of shrug your shoulders and be like all right like how is that really different than 900,000 or 800,000 and that that's just like incredibly sad and obviously we're at this stage two plus years into the in this pandemic where I personally at least have largely just gone back to my life as it was before and I there are reasons for that. Some of those are without like outside of my control in terms of like my age and my socioeconomic status and my relative health. And like, that's knock on wood for all of those things where, I, where I'm just lucky of things with beyond my control. Some of that stuff is in my control, I believe, because I have gotten vaccinated and boosted and tried to take all the necessary precautions where I was told to do so. But yeah, like largely it, it feels in some sense like while this is like kind of still happening, it's it's more or less over and we all want it to be over and we've all wanted to be over for a long time because like we could we just couldn't have done what we did those first two months for forever. Obviously, it's just it's just honestly like it's hard for me to wrap my mind around it like psychologically of people are still dying and they're not dying at close to the rates they were dying in March of 2020, thank goodness. But like people are still dying. Like these numbers are still going up and 
this is where I was reading some things where people were kind of saying that like as tragic as those deaths were in the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, it was, you could at least understand why those people died is that like, this was a brand new disease that scientists hadn't seen before and governments had never dealt with before. And so you could excuse mistakes and not, not to say that like all mistakes were equal by doctors and scientists and politicians, but we were all kind of being like, this is unprecedented in, in how we're dealing with this. And so again, you could excuse some of those mistakes, which unfortunately led to deaths. But the more glaring thing is that we've had vaccinations available in the United States for a year and a half at this point. Over about a year ago today, it was open for every single person. If you wanted to get vaccinated, you could get vaccinated. And since that time, I think something like 250,000 people, 300,000 people have died in the last year, where those deaths obviously are not all one, but many of those deaths feel more preventable. And in some ways, that's more tragic that people are dying at these high rates and we, we could have, have chosen differently. And that, that was the headline I'd read was that 1 million deaths was a choice. And so that, that was a great headline because it, it stops you and it makes you think of like what choices we made as, politi- as, as a society to it, allow these deaths to continue. So again, I, I know it's, it's hard to talk about, but what, what do you think or what thoughts do you have? What feelings do you have when you hear that number? Yeah, it's, a, it's just a staggeringly high number. One third of 1% of like the entire population. Yeah, from one disease that just showed up less than two years ago, or yeah, about two years ago now. Um, I guess two and a half, two and a half years ago. So I'm not losing track of the time. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's what the pandemic does to you. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, I, yes, you know, tragic doesn't begin to ex- to really cover it. Um, and then you have sort of the examples of other places in the world that just did better than us uh, for whatever reasons. I'm sure different people will draw different conclusions, but um, I guess the, you know, the, the facts are out there and yeah, these are, yeah, like you said, the the direct result of the choices that we made. I think I think maybe the difficult thing where this something like this doesn't necessarily square with how we kind of understand like fairness in all things or like fairness in the way that the world should work, I guess, is that while, yeah, I think you're definitely right to point out the, um, the number of deaths after sort of like proven vaccines were available and, and how much of that, um, can be sort of ascribed to people's general mistrust in the government and in politics in general, whichever side you were falling on, um, is sort of one element of the tragedy, but, but also, yeah, kind of how we chose to respond from the get-go 
I think there is there's a part of you of you the the royal you that can say that yeah well we didn't really know what we were getting into but we chose the sort of the less conservative route um in terms of like is this could this thing be terrible could it not i think early on we definitely chose the path that said like you know it could be bad but you know we're american common flu is not gonna upend us the way that it did right I, I yeah I, I mean I think there's something something to be said for it, it's humbling in a way I think we've been able to engineer our way out of a lot of things or you know our our a growing economy has been our trump card or whatever the amount of wealth and military power has always sort of been this calling card of like how we're this kind of unstoppable force in the world. And you, you hit a number like 1 million deaths in, in two and a half years. And you sort of realize that there as much agency as we want to ascribe to, to anything, there are just still things out there that are very much, um, that very much don't do not, uh, are not going to bend to, to our will. And I think, I don't know. I think there are some additional lessons to, to take out of that perhaps. For sure. And it would be a mistake not to take lessons out of this. And that's one of those things where I am glad every day that I don't live in China or even a place like Australia, given how they've handled COVID versus how the United States did. With that said, I think there's been, 6.2, 6.3 million deaths worldwide from COVID, and the United States has one, one sixth of those. And if you look at the, the countries that come next, first of all, the United States is way ahead. And I understand like per capita numbers might be different. But if we're just looking at like total deaths here, United States, Brazil, India, Russia, Mexico, Peru, not, no not throwing shade at any of those countries, but like not the best are, to be on. Right. We always kind of say like, look at, if you want to look, I've said, I've said this recently in a different episode with different contexts, like look who your friends are with, like, if you want to know who you are. And if like, if those are the list in terms of like public health, I'm not totally sure that, like you said, that that's the list that we want to be on. And so it is something where you do hope. And I think people have, but you, you do hope that we aren't so arrogant that we can't take a look at some other countries and see how we could handle not only the rest of this pandemic, but the future pandemics that will inevitably come our way, whether it's in a decade or in in a century. So yeah, I do hope we draw lessons. Last thing on that is that the U S government we've said has been the Biden administration has been asking for more and more COVID funds. The Senate is not giving them those funds for a myriad of reasons, but it's, we know that the types of vaccines that we have, not that I am any sort of scientist, but our mRNA vaccines, and we know that like over time, the effect of vaccines, of those vaccines wane in a way that vaccines like the chickenpox vaccine or something like that doesn't wane in, in the same way or like, like, uh, like polio vaccines, like you, when you get those once as a child, like that's all, that's all you need. The vaccines that we currently have their effectiveness wanes over time. And so we know that as 
the, the further away you are from your last vaccination, the more susceptible you are to COVID and more serious forms of COVID. We know that cases tend to spike in the fall. And right now, we, are, we seem to be making no preparations for a wave that scientists are pretty much all telling us are coming. And so that's another frustrating thing where it's like, when I talk about preventable deaths, this seems like just a looming disaster that we are not dealing with for some reason. And that that's confusing to me. Like we're, we're just, we're going to throw 40 billion at Ukraine and we can't like, like you said earlier, right. And we're not, we can't do 10 billion to try to make sure that we have vaccines for the fall. Like wh- what are we doing? Here? Yeah. Seems. Yeah. I mean, and this is that same sort of, COVID is the boogeyman that doesn't have, that is not like uh, equal on, on both sort of sides. Like we're, we're not agreeing on it. And it actually is like a, a flashpoint depending on which side of the aisle you're on. And so this is something that we have to fight over. Whereas Russia being the big bad giant is, is not. So it's, Yeah. It is, uh, I mean, I, I'm hopeful that like in the last variation that, that sort of spread pretty rapidly, it was a lot lower hospitalizations, but like, yeah, it is just kind of wishful thinking at this point. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to, to tell you. I mean, some of the odd stuff about the COVID just relief and, and spending not on the particular sort of preparation side of things but that there's just like a ton of money that was appropriated earlier that like states are now just like inventing ways to to apply those funds today and they're not like all right we have some of this money we can reuse it for more covid preparations i think that's an interesting just kind of quirk of how this has all (laughs) um has all unfolded all right. Well, that questions and answers, I suppose that uh, that's that might be the title of this episode. That's <laughs> that's that. Yeah, that seems to be the consensus. So, yeah, a lot of very difficult topics. And I don't think people are coming here looking for an- answers per se. And I don't know that you and I walk away with any answers but hopefully a better understanding of some of these issues and hopefully an understanding of what we could be doing better or what we could do better in the future. Yeah. I think there's some of that. And then just a little bit of soul searching around, and this is the tension that we always talk about, but like is our system that has served us so well for so long continuing to do that or or do we have like where yeah where do we have to start in order to to tackle some of these massive problems that have been around for years centuries yeah (laughs) real positive note to it is monday after all All right last thing i'll say on that just because you've triggered something in me now is i think one thing that you've made me think of today is that like when everyone from both sides of the aisle are all on board with something that can be dangerous 
And when people are so entrenched in their beliefs on their other, like on opposite sides, that can also be dangerous. And so like, where are we engaging in legitimate, honest, like good faith debate over some of these issues to try to, to try to make, to try to solve things. So like with the gun thing, everyone's so entrenched that no debate is happening. And with the Ukraine aid, everyone is so together that no debate is happening. And both of those in different ways can be equally problematic, but where, where is like kind of the, the ombudsman or like the people that the, I don't know, the, the skeptic out there that, the, that wants to try to just like be like, all right, let, let's, can we sit back and just like have a conversation about this? Maybe we need more of that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, hopefully next episode will be a little more upbeat, but um, I appreciate you taking the time to have these conversations with me and for everyone out there that's listening to listen to these conversations and hopefully have them continue to have them with us and in, in, in your own lives as well. Yeah. It's always cathartic. And I, uh, even, even if we don't go, go too far, um, I can say I feel a little better at the end of each one of these. There you go. Positivity. (laughs) Love that. All right. Till next time, bud. See you soon. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue. Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a Case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The value of sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Though we didn't share Opinions we share Loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics It's trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find And chase the lion's head 
folks a different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks a different mind because though we did not. Share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.